Today, provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi calls for strengthened ties among China, Russia and India. British Prime Minister Theresa May offers MPs Brexit delay vote. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has been re-elected for a second term. Cuba approves new constitution that pushes for economic and social reform. Beijing-Shanghai High-Speed Railway prepares for IPO. You're listening for Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi calls for strengthened ties among China, Russia and India. He made the remarks during a meeting of the foreign ministers from those three nations in the East Chinese city of Wuzhen. Wang stressed that the countries should work together to coordinate how best to confront the spread of terrorism and extremism. On the economic front, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said at a press conference that the three countries are determined to increase protectionism for world trade and encourage opportunity throughout the world. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Rongying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Dr. Rong, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So what is your biggest takeaway from this trilateral meeting? Well, I think the uh, the meeting itself certainly is the kind of a routine, regular meeting, annual take place uh, annually, and but the uh, the significance is that uh, the uh, current international regional situation is undergoing dramatic and complicated changes, and China, Russia, India are the three large uh, uh, three I mean uh, emerging economies and. Uh, uh, developing countries are of great influence. So the determination, uh, uh, I mean, and to strengthen coordination cooperation is very important. That it would bring uh, more st- sense of st- uh, stability and positive energy. So, uh, State Councilor uh, and Foreign Minister Wang Yi, I think, uh, in, uh, when meeting press, uh, he summarized the. Uh, 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 the uh, meeting uh, reached eight uh, important consensus. I, for me, I think uh, these eight uh, consensus point consensus certainly cover several important areas. One is, of course, the agreement. The three sides agreed to strengthen, uh, continue to con- strengthen cooperation coordination. The other, uh, the other thing is that they agreed to. Um, uh, uh, to work together closely uh, on this major, some major global and regional issues. For example, on uh, how to protect, safeguard multilateralism, how to ensure uh, the uh, 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 the uh, regional hotspot issues like the question of Afghanistan and Venezuela and others. And also, I think the the. Uh, the third, I think, takeaway for me is that the three countries agreed that the meeting, informal meeting of the leaders of the three countries of great strategic importance. And they made a suggestion that this year, the two, three leaders should meet again on a trilateral forum. This is very much important because in the past, Ten years and more, we have regular foreign ministers meeting, but then we only had two irregular uh, meetings among leaders. So that would provide uh, uh, political, very important political guidance for this trilateral cooperation. Last but not least, I think the the three sides also work together, agreed to further expand and consolidate practical cooperation, including, I think. Uh, I mean, dialogue among scholars has always been there, and also the foreign uh, young diplomats, and more imp- and also equally important is that to establish look at the possibility of establish a kind of uh, min- defense ministers meeting for three countries. So this is going to be help the, to consolidate the institutional agreement, and more importantly, I think give a better platform for the three countries to. Ex- to cooperate 
to to have a bigger say on the international and regional issues. Yes, but how how do you look at this Russia India China format? What role do you think it can play、um, in the search for solutions to numerous challenges and, and threats worldwide? I think, as I said, we all agree that China and Russia、uh, are the、uh, member,、uh, permanent member of the UN Security Council. So, as always, been play a very important role on the regional and the hotspot issues, global issues. India has been、uh, the large, the developing country, fast growing economy, also has a strong、uh, sort of a desire and aspiration to play a bigger role in international issues, including UN. So the three the agreement of the three countries to work together and、uh, would help provide a kind of a, a solution or contribution among the China Russia India solution to the numerous challenges that that we are talking about. This is something very much significant because the world today need better solutions. The current I think when we are facing more problems but fewer solutions. Well, the recent Paul Wama terror attack was also mentioned during the meetings, and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said at the meeting that we agreed to jointly combat all forms of terrorism through closer policy coordination and practical cooperation. Especially important is to eradicate the breeding grounds of terrorism and extremism. What does that tell about China's stance on this escalating tensions between India and Pakistan? Uh, China on the question of counterterrorism, China's position has been clear and consistent. That is, we have been always advocate、um, a kind of opposition、uh, for against. I mean,、uh, terrorism、uh, in all manifestation, and this is, I think, the the the, the foreign minister meets this time coincides and and an incident, and actually took the tension out of that. Uh, between uh, uh, Pakistan, India, and Pakistan, so I think it's very much would,、uh, the world, the international community, are very much interested in watching what would be coming out from this foreign minister's meeting. And I, again, it's been very important that the, the foreign minister, three, I mean, three countries, pledge that they would work together to fight、uh, terrorism in all manifestation, and more importantly, to strengthen policy、uh, coordination. Uh, and、uh, practical cooperation on counterterrorism and to work together to address to eradicate the 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 ground for、uh, breeding for terrorism and extremism. So this is a very positive again uh, uh, message. But more importantly, I think it was also being it being also very important in this in the context where terrorism is now become is increasingly becoming a, a threat. Well, the、uh, Indian External Affairs Minister Shushma Swaraj told China and Russia that India does not wish to see further escalation of the situation and will continue to act with responsibility and restraint. However, just a few hours ago, Pakistan says it has shot down two Indian Air Force jets inside Pakistani territory. So, do you feel that maybe the situation is getting worse instead of calming down? Uh, I think it's been very positive for the India Foreign Min- I mean, Minister, Minister Swaraji, to、uh, to state that India does not want to see more further escalation situation. Even though I think the the effort, I mean, the move by the India side has been is being perceived. I mean that it is a kind of they、uh, in the danger of, 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 of I mean. Escalating to the escalation of the situation,、uh, as I said, that uh, uh, the the country in the region and India, Pakistan included, are all victims of terrorism. And the most important thing is, of course, to work together to fight、uh, terrorism. But for that, I think we need to have a better conversation, have a better effort to address the the the, the root causes for、uh, terrorism. And when incidents like the Paoma happened, I think it should work together to diffuse instead of escalate the situation. And we are we are、uh, very unfortunate and worrisome about the recent incidents and escalation. And I hope that the situation with that 
I mean, remarks and with the joint efforts of India and Pakistan and support like China and uh, Russia and others, the situation would not go get out of the control. But the, the people, I mean, the recent today's development is really uh, worrisome. So we'll let us wait and see, uh, see what would happen in the, and in the hope that in the hope that uh, peace will prevail and uh, India and Pakistan will finally uh, find a way to address it. And also, at this moment, I think the most important thing is the two sides, both sides have to exercise the strength. Well, well, uh, strength, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, on the economic front, what do you see are the potentials for trilateral cooperation economically? Economically, I think uh, they, uh, this is an area of great potential and they look at the, the mechanism of the past uh, uh, 15, no, 15 years more, there has been a lot of efforts to explore, I mean, economic cooperation, practical areas. And, but so far, personally, I feel it does not go uh, as sort of effective or as important as the strategic and political dialogue. It's because I think the two, three countries are, uh, I mean, the, if you look at their, uh, their their economic structure and and also their uh, their sort of development strategies, uh, there are many areas I think we need to the three countries need to work together to explore. And but the most important thing from at least out of this uh, meeting, I think is that the three sides have pledged that they would resolutely. Uh, oppose the unilateral and protected and to safeguard the multilateral trading system based on law and promote uh, WTO uh, reform. This is a very important, uh, again, message and a a new area, uh, if if not just specific, but at least as relating trade and uh, WTO uh, issues. Yes, this is a very positive signal. But what do you think they can um, really do together in in the face of this anti-globalization trend? I think first and foremost is, of course, the three countries among themselves uh, when they are dealing with bilateral trade issues and they should uphold the principle of uh, uh, multilateralism, trade liberalism, and work together to prepare provide better facilities and uh, for trade uh, investment cooperation. This is the most important thing. And uh, they, they, the, the positive side is that I think if you look at the bilateral trade among uh, the three countries, China, India, China, Russia, the trade volume has been ri- I mean, rising uh, pretty fast. But still, I think there are some structural issues. And so it sometimes causes problems. How to do that? I think uh, certainly it takes a lot of negotiation talks, but I think the spirit of free trade and the spirit of um, uh, multilateral should prevail. And uh, even though there are differences, even though there are some specific issues have to be addressed. Well, as we know, as independent powers, China, Russia and India have never aligned with any group when it comes to strategic security. So what do you make of this kind of non-aligned strategic interactions among the three countries? This is a very important, I think, point we have to keep in mind when we look at this trilateral uh, cooperation or coordination. Um, as, as a matter of fact, uh, the first day, uh, in the first day of yeah, the establishment of that charter of cooperation, the three countries made it very clear it is not meant to forge a kind of alliance, it's not meant to uh, seek for uh, confrontation, it's not uh, aimed at the another party, the third party, or whatever. So this is because they are advocating, they're all advocates of multilateralism, they're all advocating a multipolarity, and they're all opposed to power politics uh, and, and dividing countries among the lines. So these, the very fact that uh, the, this trilateral cooperation and that is a kind of a test is a testament to the practice that the three countries are promoting as a new type of international relation based on mutual benefit, and cooperation, and mutual respect. So I think this is a new way of uh, promoting major country or even emerging 
country cooperation, which is was forged, which I think is in a, a kind of a sharp contrast with the other uh, alliance building and uh, politics. Thank you, Dr. Wang Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Coming up, British Prime Minister Theresa May offers MPs Brexit delay vote. You're listening to today. Stay with us. For breaking news and stories that matter to you, find us on Twitter by searching for China Plus News, where we'll share with you our up-to-the-minute news, in-depth analysis, and live streaming videos. Visit China Plus News for your window on China and the world. Welcome back. You're listening to today. I'm Zhao Ying. British Prime Minister Theresa May promises to hold a vote on delaying the UK's departure from the EU or ruling out a no-deal Brexit if MPs reject her deal by the March 29 deadline. May promises a meaningful vote on Brexit by March 12. Failing that, MPs will vote the following day on whether to support a no-deal Brexit, and if that fails to move forward, MPs will vote on March 14 on whether to delay Brexit. If the House, having rejected leaving with the deal negotiated with the EU, then rejects leaving on the 29th of March without a withdrawal agreement and future framework, the government will, on the 14th of March, bring forward a motion on whether Parliament wants to seek a short, limited extension to Article 50. And if the House votes for an extension, seek to agree that extension approved by the House with the EU. And bring forward the necessary legislation to change the exit date commensurate with that extension. And now we are joined on the line by Dennis Kemmel, founder and editor of UK Progressive Magazine. Mr. Kemmel, thanks for joining us. Good evening. Well, we know that for months Theresa May has ruled out any extension to the Brexit process, but now, in the face of opposition from within her own cabinet, she blinked. So, what do you make of this this concession, and what do you think led to this decision? You know, on our podcast, the Three Muckrakers, we have a long-standing nickname for Theresa May. If Margaret Thatcher was the Iron Lady, she is the Tin Lady. She's clearly overplayed her hand. She's delayed the final vote in the hopes of pressuring those that are mutinying within her Tory party to follow her lead, which they won't. They've had two and a half years to sort it, and here we are, 31 days away from Brexit, and the vote is not even scheduled for another two weeks. Mm-hmm. So, what are the domestic reactions to Theresa May's offer? Well, legitimate fear and terror at this point. I mean, the toll of the number of businesses leaving or considering leaving the UK is now one in three. Think about that: one in three businesses are going to relocate their headquarters from the UK to the、um, European Union, so they can continue to trade. This is, you know, from the Institute of Directors. Honda's closing its main EU assembly plant in Swindon. Ford announced a thousand jobs are going to be lost in their Bridgend EU engine plant, and this is on top of Airbus stopping the building of the A380 altogether, whose wings, <coughs> excuse me, are made in Wales. So there are dozens of other manufacturing and jobs and plants that are about to be to be lost. I mean, it's just bloody stool everywhere, and the Tories live in a complete bubble with Labour's leader as a co-conspirator because he's also pro-Brexit. But yesterday came out in favour of a second referendum. Yes, and Theresa May has said any extension should not go beyond the end of June. So, if the British Parliament does vote to extend this deadline to June, what do they hope to achieve in three months that they haven't achieved in two years? Nothing. I mean, the mutineers are going to make sure to that. I mean, they they vote in favor of her when it looks as though they're going to be handing something to the to the the Labour Party. But、uh, if they can defeat her, they will do absolutely nothing to lift a finger. You know, when when Donald Tusk, who is the head of the EU, said last week that there's a special place in hell for those who fought for Brexit, had no idea how to do it, and then abandoned ship, leaving Theresa behind when it got difficult, when it was clear they had no idea, he was right. Everyone associated with the Leave campaign resigned from government and said, "You fix it, Theresa." And then they didn't like her negotiated solution, so they took the toys and threw them out of the pram. Well, good luck with that. I mean, EU President Donald Tusk has said he could actually see an extension of this Article 50 until 2021 because so many areas of government and governance are affected. 
Yeah, uh, actually, uh, yesterday, uh, the, the British government has just given its own assessment of the economic impact of no-deal Brexit, estimating that the UK economy could be 9% weaker in the long run, and businesses in Northern yeah. Ireland might go bust and food prices will increase. And it says a big part of the problem is that most businesses have not adequately prepared for the possibility of the country leaving the European Union without a divorce agreement. Uh, what's your takeaway from this report? Well, the businesses cannot prepare because the government has no clue what to prepare for. And the report dramatically understates the impact. The EU member staff in healthcare, technology, manufacturing, they're already planning to return to the EU, or they have, or they're not going to come over here. The NHS has more than 3,000 skilled nursing and doctor positions unfilled that would have been filled by qualified UA doc, uh, EU excuse me, uh, doctors and nurses. Uh, people have been stockpiling canned goods, medicines, Brexit-ready meals, because 70% of the fresh fruit and vegetables consumed in the United Kingdom come from the EU by lorry into the port of Dover. And, you know, customs checks and slowdowns could cause 40-kilometer tailbacks of these lorries on the M20, as well as those attempting to come across from Calais. So food will rot in their trucks and then needs to be disposed of. This is going to impact all of the EU. Well, actually, Theresa May's plan could mean that MPs are offered a chance to vote to delay Brexit by extending Article 50. But is there any guarantee that the European Union would agree to such move? Um, There's no guarantee. But Mm -hmm. the EU does not want Britain to leave because of the 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 havoc that it will wreak. So they'll support an extension probably without question because it's in their interest to do so. Mm -hmm. And if the deadline is extended to June... Would it have an impact on the European Parliament elections in May? And would Britain take part? It could. I mean, the original deal said everything is going to remain as it was until 2020, but that's been, of course, rejected. So they may have to hold elections if there's a no-deal crash-up, but there's a bigger issue. I mean, you're dealing with a group that has a tremendous amount of negotiating power in the European Union. And Britain has treated this entire exercise completely arrogantly. You know, the sun shall never set on the British Empire. Well, the EU27 have repeatedly reminded us You are a tiny island nation of 60 million. We are 350 million. Every one of our member states has a veto which can kill any deal on our terms. So bye-bye now. Well, as you mentioned earlier, opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn said the Labour Party is, is now ready to back calls for a second Brexit referendum to prevent a damaging Tory Brexit being forced on the country. What do you think has led to this, this shift in Labour Party's Brexit stance? Well, it's it's probably naked personal self-interest on the part of Jeremy Corbyn. He lost seven members of his party this past week to a new group called the Independent Group. They're not officially a party yet, but by the end of the year, they will be. The Tories also saw three high-level defections into this group. So both party leaders are under great pressure. But Labour has many more members on the Remain side than the Tories do. But Corbyn himself is a Eurosceptic and is secretly a lever. That has created massive problems for him within his own party. Plus, he desperately needs something to distract from the anti-Semitism charges against him and his party. So why not come out in favor of a second referendum? So what do you make of the possibility of this uh, a second referendum? How disruptive would that be to, to the British life and British politics? Well, not as disruptive as actually leaving the EU. Polls show that if a second referendum were held today, leave would, use by, would lose by between 10 and 12 points. And frankly, this entire process has been so costly and dangerous. I mean, most voters, including me, are furious that people were deceived in the vote in a referendum with all of the Russian-backed disinformation from Cambridge Analytica on immigration, sovereignty, claims that 350 million pounds would come back to the NHS. All of these were debunked the day of or the day after the election once the vote was announced. British politics are in a shambolic state. Voters are tired of the pedantic and childish point-scoring exchanges over the dispatch box during Prime Minister Question Time Theatre. Brexit has paralyzed any government decisions being taken on the NHS, the fiscal crises in local authorities, and hundreds of other issues. These are what Parliament should be addressing. But the British government has failed the people of Britain and the opposition has done itself no favors representing themselves as a credible alternative because they're not. And this is why the independent group actually shows promise.
Thank you, Dr. Dennis Campbell, founder and editor of UK Progressive Magazine. Nigeria's electoral body on early Wednesday declared. President Muhammad Buhari, the winner of the country's presidential election, Buhari, the candidate of the governing All Progressive Congress Party, topped the poll with 55.6 percent of the valid votes in presidential election held on Saturday. The runner-up of the main opposition People's Democratic Party won 41 percent of the valid votes. We will bring you more on this in about five in about five minutes. And also, Cuba approves new constitution amid unprecedented opposition. Beijing Shanghai High-Speed Railway prepares for IPO. To hear this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. I'm Zhao Ying. Stay with us. You're listening to today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now is global survey where we look at what's happening around the world. Joins us in the studio is Patrick Flannery. We begin in Asia Pacific, where a search is underway for survivors of a landslide at an Indonesian gold mine that killed at least one person. Asia Pacific is home to the world's most millennials, with Singapore topping a recent list of the best locations for those born in the 1980s. In Africa, at least 25 people have been killed and 50s injured by a large fire at the main railway station in Egypt's capital, Cairo. The crime of elephant poaching for ivory has gotten worse in Botswana, where carcasses found in 2018 far outnumbered those of previous years. In the Middle East, human rights are eroding in the region, with more crackdowns on free speech. Amnesty International reports. In Yemen, United Nations workers have reached a facility holding enough grain to feed three million people for a month. In Europe, every adult in Britain will be considered an organ donor starting next year to make up for the widespread donation shortage. French retailer Decathlon has backed away from a controversial plan to sell hijabs to women runners. In Latin America, an attack on Argentina's chief rabbi in his home reflects a potential rise in anti-Semitism, worry many in Buenos Aires. Peru will cancel diplomat visas at its embassy in Venezuela to recognize that country's opposition leader Juan Guaido. Finally, in the U.S., migrant Children are being sexually abused while in detention centers. That's what the health department reports, with over 4,000 complaints filed in the last few years. And President Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, will testify Wednesday that Trump engaged in criminal conduct while in office. Thank you, Patrick, for the global headlines survey of today. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has been re-elected to a second four-year term. The 76-year-old defeated his main rival, former Vice President Atiku Abubakar, by about four million votes. Abubakar's People's Democratic Party rejects the result. The turnout was 35.6 percent. For more on the Nigerian elections, we are now joined on the line by He Wenping, senior research fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So, Dr. He,、um, any idea about the、uh, people's reaction to this election result? Uh, well, uh, even this afternoon, I、uh, went to a lecture to a group of African students, and、uh, several of them actually from Nigeria. So I got a direct interview today. So、uh, today they're saying uh, it's uh, you know it's、uh, not out of the expectation. So this、uh, result they feel happy. Uh, it's uh, it's good. But uh, uh, you know uh, from uh, other perspective, I think people don't think uh, this uh, uh, result is、uh, will cause a lot of violence or whatever. So I think、uh, generally speaking. The response is still quite calm.、Uh, people accept、uh, this result. They think、uh, it's not a big surprise to all of them.、Uh, according to the survey before the election, all all the survey shows that、uh, Buhari seems got more supporting、uh, this race, and、uh, the high possibility is、uh, he's about to win. So it fits with the survey、uh, also.、Mm-hmm. So what are the hardest? Issues during the elections, and what are the major differences in the in the political views and policies between the two frontrunner Muhammadu Buhari and Atiku Abubakar that you think led to the winning of the、uh, current president? Of course, the hardest issue、uh, during the election, even after election, I think,、uh, remained the economic issue and also the、uh, anti-corruption issue and the security issue. So, economically speaking. Uh, Nigeria is the largest economy、uh, in Africa. So, and also the 
you know, the, the largest oil producer in Africa and even ranks as number six uh, in the whole of the world. Uh, but people, the unemployment rate is also very high, uh, as high as like 20%. And most of those uh, youth people, they feel uh, no job and no income and then no hope. So those, how to change this uh, economic performance? And also how to continue this anti-corruption campaign and plus the security. Actually, those three big issues have been there for a long, long time. Even the President Buhari himself, when he was uh, running for his first term, uh, by that time when he was, uh, you know, the competing with the then the President, the good luck of Jonathan. So those issues are also his campaign folks. He pledged to do more things to like a, uh, to uh, improve the economy and then to fight this corruption and also fighting with the Boko Haram, this uh, extremist group. So all those things he has been doing. So the reason for his winning out, I think uh, maybe people think uh, he, uh, his performance uh, he, uh, has been good, uh, not that bad, uh, even though those three things cannot be, uh, you know, uh, resolved within such a short time. Because like anti-corruption has been there for decades, decades, decades long. Uh, but to uh, anti this uh, terror issue, Boko Haram issue, uh, has achieved some kind of uh, result. So it's not that uh, uh, frequency activity has been made by this Boko Haram. They have been uh, chased to a very small area. So people give him more time to continue his job. I think uh, this is the signal. A message we have been reading uh, from this election. And how do you look at this low turnout rate? Because the election turnout was only 35.6%, which is lower than the uh, 44% four years ago. Yeah, this is a, a very sad point for this election. Uh, I think uh, from, one, uh, uh, from one point, we see this is an increasing gap between those elite people, uh, those uh, official, the people, VIP people, and then with the grassroots people. Because there's a gap. This gap now is becoming widening. Uh, people don't believe those words coming from those politicians. So they lost this uh, interesting or enthusiasm to go to vote uh, to show their rights. But uh, another point uh, thing is, uh, due to those logistics, uh, shortfall, uh, this facilities, because I, I, I heard and uh, seeing some polling station is far, far away. And then for some voters, they need transportation to go to this kind of place. Yeah, the distance is longer. And then they're short of transportation means the government has not seen organized some bus, uh, bring people to those polling stations. So for those voters, they simply think uh, they don't have money even go there. So just drop uh, this idea to go to the capture the, uh, the you know the ticket. So that's the logistic issue. Uh, this is facility shortfall. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we know that back in 2011, nearly a thousand people were killed during the post-election violence in the country's north. So, do you feel the history is likely to repeat itself as we are also witnessing some violence before and after this election? Well, I'm not that pessimistic about uh, this kind of consequences after the voting. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, before the election, uh, international society paid a great, uh, great attention to, and the ECOWAS, that is the regional, uh, uh, regional organization in the Western Africa, they all uh, have uh, talked and, uh, with those uh, two candidates and, uh, with, and the other candidates. Even the two leading parties, they have signed this uh, peace agreement for uh, make this... Uh, uh, campaign and all the election in a peaceful way. Even the Buhari, the President Buhari has made it very clear. He said, if, uh, if I'm not winning out eventually, I will accept uh, the result in a peaceful way. So they showed this uh, very good and uh, democratic attitude. And also during the whole this campaign time until now, we haven't heard uh, wide uh, spreading of the violence, just uh, some, uh, you know, uh, small cases. Until today, I, 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 through the information I collected, seeing the total is just 16, 16 maybe people died from some uh, violent issue. So very much, much less than the previous time. So I also have this confidence uh, for the, the coming days 
even though now some opposition party supporters saying this election is not that uh, transparent, but the international observer, uh, the team, uh, they have uh, gave uh, this yes uh, to this all those uh, voting systems, saying this is a transparent, is fair, and equal. So I don't think uh, the violence will get in that serious. Yes, occasionally those uh, some uh, individual cases cannot be avoided. Uh, the widespread violence. I don't see that thing uh, quite high possibility. Thank you, Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Coming up, Cuba approves new constitution amid unprecedented opposition. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Stay with us. Hi, this is Einar Tangen. The Today Show brings expert local and international perspectives on China's economic and business issues. Having been in law, government, and finance in the United States, I find China's economic and political evolution fascinating, and hope you do also. Thank you for listening. You are listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Cubans have overwhelmingly ratified a new constitution that pushes for economic and social reform. The charter imposes age and terms limit on the president and creates the position of prime minister. It also spells out new measures regarding private property, foreign investment, and small business. The National Electoral Commission reports that 80% of voters turned out to support Cuba's goal of advancing towards a communist society. For more about Cuba's new constitution, my colleague Su Yi earlier talked with Zhang Shixue, director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. So how do you see the continuity and changes in the new constitution? What's changed and what's not? Uh, let's say no changes first. Uh, we can see that uh, uh, Cuba will continue to uh, walk along the road of socialism. So there will be no changes. And secondly... Cuba will be under the leadership of the Communist Party, so there will be no change. Uh, there are some uh, some changes. The most uh, important uh, change, I I would say, is the uh, so-called legalization of the uh, private sector. Secondly, well, there will be a, a kind of new position for the government, that uh, the premier or, or prime minister. Also, small changes. In the past, I will say, at least uh, in the past uh, one or two decades, the Cuban leadership has put some kind of emphasis on the development of the private sector. But still, there are there were, uh, until now, there were some kind of limitations. It's reported that uh, in the private restaurant, the owner cannot uh, put uh, more than three or four or five tables. Mm-hmm. Because the the government wants to limit the number of diners, so that uh, the scale, the scope of the private uh, business cannot be so big. The private sector is going to play a more important role in the Cuban economy. A very positive sign. And secondly, as regard the uh, position of the prime minister, this is also a uh, one very important step towards the so-called decentralization of political power in the Caribbean country. Uh, you know, in China, we have party secretary, president, uh, and the prime minister. And in Cuba, until now, they have only party secretary and the president, and no prime minister. Mm. The power is concentrated in the party. Some commentators say in Cuba, because there's no decentralization or the power is centralized in the party. People say in Cuba, party is a state and the state is a party. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now we are going to see that uh, uh, decentralization of power. And uh, also compared with the first draft, which was put forward uh, half a year ago, when important sentence was deleted, that was marching towards the communism. Mm-hmm. And uh, after, conduct, after consultation, after discussion among the uh, ordinary people, and now this sentence uh, is still uh, in the Constitution. Uh, this sentence, marching towards the communism, still remains in the Constitution.
constitution. So this is this is also a very good uh, sign. Uh, also, the second uh, important uh, change in the past uh, six months or so is the discussion about the same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. In the first draft, uh, it it uh, it was intended that uh, same-sex marriage could be legal, but. Uh, some people, particularly the church, was opposed to this uh, amendment. So now you cannot, we, we cannot find uh, this sentence in the new constitution. Cuba is going to pay attention to this kind of uh, social development. And I was told, or, or, or we can read from the newspaper, that uh, probably Cuba might have a public opinion survey or new referendum about uh, the article regarding same-sex marriage. So you mentioned the private sector, all the economic reform measures. And how about a foreign investment? And to what extent is Cuba, from the reading of this new constitution, opening up itself to foreign investors? Uh, we must say that uh, Cuba has been uh, open to foreign investment for, for such a long time. Uh, uh, we can say even as early as Soviet Union, was disunion. Uh, Cuba realized that it was very important to attract foreign investment. But uh, until now, we can say, I will say, the government uh, is still quite cautious regarding uh, the uh, so-called inflow of foreign investment. Well, like China, uh, in the first, first, uh, well, the government tended to uh, take uh, some kind of cautious uh, step. Uh, we we cannot uh, open the door 100% and then ask for investment uh, to come in. But uh, from from this new constitution, we are going to see that uh, the government uh, will be uh, more open or more liberal regarding attracting foreign investment. So it's also a very good sign. Another question is about outside environment. How would you evaluate uh, the outside environment, particularly regional environment for Cuba, the country is facing when it comes to attracting foreign investment and also dealing with relations with other countries, uh, particularly the uh, United States? And also, how about uh, the uncertainties in uh, Venezuela? Regarding the bilateral relationship between Cuba and the U.S., I think uh, the U.S. should be uh, blamed for this kind of situation. The constitution of Cuba this time only states the basic principles of its foreign policy. You cannot see this kind of a bilateral relationship between Cuba and the U.S. or Cuba and Venezuela. Hmm. But uh, I can assume that uh, in, the, in the near future, at least uh, when Trump is still in the White House, I don't believe that uh, we are going to see big, important improvement of the relationship between Cuba and the U.S. There will be uh, some kind of uh, minor changes between the relationship uh, for Cuba and Venezuela, because Venezuela is now a multiple crisis. So Cuba wants to pursue independent uh, foreign policy. But uh, in the long run, I would say Cuba... First, uh, we can say Cuba will be more open to any countries, including U.S., China, Russia, Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I would say that the Cuba will continue to pursue its uh, independent foreign policy. So it, uh, it, it will be more and more independent. That, that can be certain. That's Zhang Shixue, director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University, speaking with Sui. Still to come, Beijing-Shanghai High-Speed Railway prepares for IPO. You're listening to today. Stay with us. As a guest speaker with today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishment and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe today opens the window as well as build a bridge between people in China and the world. Welcome back. The operator of the Beijing-Shanghai High-Speed Railway, one of China's busiest high-speed rail lines, has launched preparations for an initial public offering or IPO on the mainland stock market. 
An official with the China Railway Corporation said the IPO will be a major move to advance the shareholding reform in national railway enterprises. With high-quality assets and stable cash flows, the Beijing-Shanghai High-Speed Railway Corporation has been turning a profit for more than three years in a row and is eligible for an IPO. With a total length of 1,300 kilometers and linking the capital with the eastern coastal city of Shanghai, the Beijing-Shanghai High-Speed Railway has carried 940 million passengers since starting operation in June 2011. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yan earlier spoke with Winston Wan, managing director of Shipstone Group Limited, and Michael Powers, Zurich Insurance Group professor of risk and finance at Tsinghua University. So, Winston, why does the Beijing-Shanghai High-Speed Railway Corporation Limited want to be listed on the mainland stock market? Why does it want to be a public listed company? Well, I, I do not know their true uh, motivation.、Uh, But I could analyze the benefit of,、uh, you know, going public for such a、uh, uh, railway, high-speed railway com- company. Number one, it is、uh, the the China Railway、uh, Corporation is a huge company, and it's a company with extremely high, you know, leverage, extremely high, you know, debt level. Uh, they they uh, they borrowed a lot to lay out all the systems,、uh, and going to divest one part of a profitable business. That could, you know, get back a lot of cash, and that cash can be used to deleverage the company. So that's inconsistent.、Uh, that's consistent with the, you know, the overall government uh, uh, direction trying to lower the leverage ratio of the SOE. So that's one of the major uh, uh, benefits. And number、uh, number two, I think because. You know this uh, this uh, uh, Beijing Shanghai High Speed Rail is one of the probably best performing、uh, units of China Railway、uh, Corporation, and that going you know to going public and have more transfers to attract more、uh, capitals could help set a very good example for the other parts of the country where you know they could model this and to, could go you know some way. To、uh, someday to to the capital market too.、Mm. So、uh, all these are adding together. I think are are actually helping improve the performance of this、uh, China Railway Corporation. Mm. And Michael, a lot of Chinese high-speed railway lines are not profitable. But when can,、uh, why can this Beijing Shanghai high-speed railway make profits? I think that's primarily because of its location and the traffic. Um, there is a tremendous demand for、uh, good rapid transit、um, between the, these two major cities, Beijing, Shanghai, and actually it, it, not just Shanghai, but but the the, the region around、um, around the,、uh, Shanghai as well.、Um, and, and so I, I, I think it, it's very natural、um, that this this has been a, a successful project, and and I suspect that that other rail lines which are not currently profitable. Will、um, see their day in the sun、um, some years in the future.、Uh, this sort of in- investment in infrastructure、uh, is something that has to be done over a long period of time. It's something that, that China is probably better at doing than a country such as the United States, where、um, where government、um, leaders or and, and business partners would be looking、um, for a more rapid return, a more rapid indication of profitability. But、um, look, you know, looking at the the energy needs of countries and their their the tra- transportation needs of their their population, I, I think that there is going to be a shift toward rail, and especially high speed rail, and that even these other lines that are currently less profitable. Will become more successful in the future.、Mm. And so, when some insiders say China is planning a record high real investment of、uh, around 850 billion yuan this year, which is six percent higher over the last year, but some economists have concern about the、uh, high-speed railway, you know, creating debt. But、uh, others say it should be seen over the long period of time. So, what's your take? Is there,、uh, you know, any real risk in high-speed railway investment or How to make it more sustainable? Well, the, it's all about the investment return and how long are you going to, you know, get back what you put in work. You don't want to build roads into nowhere where in the future、uh, that nobody wants to use it, or the number of people who use it cannot、uh, 
provide sufficient return uh, to the capital that deployed right now. So it's always of a, a, a balance. It's, uh, it's what investors you know, rely on to make a, a, a final uh, decision. So even though we say we'd like to see a long run, mm. it can't be infinite long, right? It can't be that, yeah. like, you know, hundreds of years because humans are just, they have a lifespan and their, every decision makers will have to consider their decision within a reasonable, you know, time period. So the, the, the abstract sort of long run is just not that useful. So in my view, it's all about a balance. You will have to, I think, one of the major considerations behind this is still trying to stimulate the economy. And, and it's always good to, you know, put down the infrastructure building and then create a lot of demand and then that will, you know, pull the economy off. Uh, but, uh, you know, you will have to consider the, 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 the consequences. I think the concern is legitimate. Mm. Uh, but you, you will have to just, uh, you know, find a, 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 the, the best trade-off you can. Mm. So, Michael, what's your idea about this, uh, you know, the sustainability of the railway or especially the high-speed railway? I, I would agree with Winston that um, it's very important not to build um, railways or, or any sort of infrastructure that will not be useful in the long run. Um, it is true, though, on the other hand, that some infrastructure uh, may have to be subsidized indefinitely simply because it um, serves portions of the country which have a low population um, and, and but still need services in order to, to maintain a growth in those areas. I, I think that what, um, what's helpful is that, um, that within China's economy, which is managed by the government, um, it, it's possible to make those decisions and to make adjustments in other aspects of the economy uh, to keep the, the infrastructure or, or to make sure that it's profitable. Where it's, it's more difficult is in, and perhaps say in the, the Belt and Road countries, where there's less um, ability of, of the investors, in particular the Chinese investors, to control how the infrastructure will be used in the long term. That's Michael Powers, Zurich Insurance Group Professor of Risk and Finance at Tsinghua University, and Winston Wan, Managing Director of Shipston Group Limited, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yan. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. The program engineer of this episode is Zhang Yan. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening.